We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Why do men withdraw when women get angry? It's one of the most common problems I see with couples in my therapy office. And it begs another question. How can both men and women feel more comfortable with anger? After all, it's a natural and necessary emotion and learn to build a better connection. My witness on The Meaningful Life is Avram Weiss, who is a psychotherapist and writes a blog for Psychology Today called Learning to Live Together. He's also the author of Hidden in Plain Sight, how men's fear of women shape their intimate relationships. I think we should sort of start off a bit by rehabilitating anger. I often joke to my clients that I'm thinking of writing a book called The Joy of Anger, but nobody (laughs) would actually buy it. And I ask them to imagine what might be in the book about the positives of anger. Now, if you were writing that book, what positives to anger would you write about? I'm so glad you started there. That's exactly where I was hoping we would start. First of all, you said something I want to underline in agreement with, which is that anger, of course, is a perfectly natural, normal feeling. And so we sometimes tend to pathologize anger as if having it meant that was wrong with someone, which leads to all kinds of problems. So starting there, my understanding of anger, and I would compare and contrast for people the difference between anger and abuse, because I think they get conflated. And again, it doesn't go well. Anger in my mind, if you're angry at me, I think the message is, Avram, I don't like the way things are going between us, and I want them to go better. So I think it's a positive thing because you care enough about how things go between me and you, and you want, you're angry at me is a message to me that you want to work on it and things to go better. And so the response, the most helpful response to anger is to listen harder, to listen because when someone's angry at you, it's usually because something's going on in the relationship that you have not been noticing and they have, and they're trying to tell you what's going on that you're missing. So the response to anger is to listen and to understand it as a loving communication. Contrasted with abuse, I once, (laughs) sanitizing the story here so it doesn't identify anyone, I called a family member (laughs) and and I I tried to intervene in a situation. This person had sent an incredibly hostile email to someone I love, someone I care about, and I offered to mediate And I I started the conversation by saying, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And even though this was a very angry email, I'm going to assume that you were trying to work something out with this person. And she said, no, I wasn't. I was trying to hurt them. That's abuse. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. So why do men withdraw when women get angry if they're actually trying to solve a problem? This should be welcomed. It should be. And if men understood that women are trying to solve the problem, they probably would respond in a more positive way. The problem is it's not experienced by men in that way. So we have to to run the tape back a fair ways to come up to the answer to your question. So it really starts with all of the gender socialization for men that make them uncomfortable with emotions. What are those messages then? Let's sort of get them all laid out for us. Sure. So I would start the conversation by talking about the developmental path of boys and girls. Boys and girls play together in mixed gender groups up until a certain age, at which point girls tend to go off and play with girls and boys play with boys. So girls play has everything to do with relationships. They play fantasy games in which they are enacting imagined relationships. And each time they do that, they're teaching each other about relationships. They also talk with each other a lot about their relationships with each other. Boys go off and practice aggression, power, and control. Boys play games of competition 
and aggression so that when boys and girls get interested in each other again later in life, boys who are used to being at a competitive advantage in the world find out very quickly that they are at a disadvantage in intimate relationships. The girls have had 10 years of practice. It just makes sense. It's not that they're innately better at it. It's that they've been practicing for 10 years. Boys feel unsure of themselves, unused to being the less knowledgeable, less skilled position, and then use a variety of strategies to try to equal the playing field. When the strategy that now men use is to try to learn from their female partners, and we're talking about heterosexual couples here, when men try to learn from their female partners, oh, this looks like something you know a lot more about, maybe you could help me understand, then things tend to go well in heterosexual relationships. When men are threatened and unable to have the humility to learn from another person, then they try to level the playing field by suppressing emotional expression in women. Well, if I'm not as good at this as you are, then I want it to be a home game. I want to play on my turf, not yours. So this is where you see men insisting that arguments remain rational and linear, criticizing women for being too emotional, for being hysterical. And as you bring up, the one emotion that is most threatening to men in women is anger. And so that's the one that they're most reactive to, most defensive about, and most try to control. Because when men try and sort of minimize their wife's emotions in the room with me, I always say to them, you know, do you do this at home as well? And they always say, yes. And I say, how well does it work for you, this trying to sort of deny your wife's feelings? And he says, they don't work at all. And, you know, so it sort of begs the question, why do men do it when it actually never works? There's never been an angry person who comes up to you and says, I'm angry about ABC. And you say, no, you have no right to be angry about ABC because of CDE. And how many times has anybody actually said, my gosh, you're right? I would say close to zero. They just go into a, a game of I'm right and you're wrong. And that leads to, well, ultimately to divorce. Yeah. I would agree with what you're saying and say it even more strongly. I don't think it's, it's not only that it doesn't help, it almost always makes it worse. Because if the best way to exaggerate a feeling in anyone is to try to get them to stop having it. So if someone feels unheard and angry at you that you're not hearing them, you're just profoundly not hearing them. You've gone from not hearing to profoundly not hearing and almost certainly they will get more angry, not less. And the answer to your question, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be, you know, the wisest person in the world. Because what you're saying is, why don't human beings learn from our mistakes? And, you know, we wouldn't have global warming. We wouldn't have the war in Ukraine. I mean, there are a lot of things that we seem. And what you know about that is that there must be something on the other side. If it doesn't make sense to you, if you can't see why the person isn't learning from their experience, then there must be something hidden that is stronger than what you can see. Yep. And you and I know the answer to this one, so let's let's go there. <laughs> it goes back all the way to our childhoods, yes. and in particular, the relationship men have with their mothers. Absolutely. Now, I know lots of people thinking are going to think that therapists are obsessed with people's mothers, but there is a very good reason why we're obsessed with people's mothers. So why should we be sort of concerned about the anger and, let's be honest, the criticism of our wives? How does that trigger material from our childhood? There is a, a very classic social psychology experiment called the still face experiment. And in this experiment, they do split screen. They have moms and babies. You can see them both. And they're interacting. They're just instructed to interact with each other. And you can see, even though obviously the babies can't talk, that there's a conversation going on between them. So the babies try making a cute face and mom smiles. And the message to the baby is, oh, that's a good face to make because it gets mom to smile. Or the moms try making a little gesture and the babies react with pleasure. So they're, they are teaching each other. They're learning from each other how to, they're reinforcing each other. You matter to me. You're important. 
I'm here, I'm with you. In the experiment, the moms are instructed to turn away, and when they turn back to have a still face, not an angry face, not a critical face, but just not providing that validation. Within minutes, every baby in the study became overwhelmed with distress to the point that some lost control of their body and bowels just at their mothers not responding to them, not yelling at them, not criticizing them, nothing. Fast forward to adulthood, and it's very interesting that in conflict in heterosexual relationships, if you hook both people up and measure their physiological reactions, men get more distressed during conflict than women do, and it takes them longer to come back to resting levels. They get more upset and they stay upset longer. And I think one of the reasons is that men outsource their emotional life to their wife. You know, if you've got a problem Absolutely. at work, and obviously if it's about, you know, how to make the books work, it's probably not that. But most problems at work are actually social problems between you and your Absolutely. colleagues and you and your boss. She will help you with that. You know, yes. if you've got a problem with your mother, your sister, the children, who do you go to? You go That's to right. your wife. Yes. And let me add a piece there. Because most men do not have other relationships with other men who would also support them in that work. And so it's all the eggs in the basket with the wife. Yeah. I mean, if I could have one change in the world, it would be that men actually spoke to other men. So they didn't actually feel quite so alone to this. One of the reasons I do this podcast is so that people hear a man talking about emotions and feelings. And, you know, the world doesn't end. Anyway, before you go on, one of the most important parts of the book to me is there's an entire chapter for men about that very subject, about how to form a support group with other men and learn how to do this kind of talking. Because the way it goes best is it's easier for men to talk with other men, although we don't stereotypically think so, it is. And then learning it there with other men makes it easier to do it with your wife. So you've been used to outsourcing your emotions and sorting out problems to your wife. She gets angry. That's the equivalent of saying, I've gone on strike, basically. That's exactly right. And you feel completely and utterly helpless. Yes. So, But are not consciously aware of it. Yeah. And that's the other problem, because whereas you and I spend our whole day looking at emotions, most men don't, because they've got this wonderful department, the human resources department, called the wife. Right. Exactly. what do you do if you've got a problem with your wife and she's angry with you? You know, one of the most powerful things I've learned to do, you know, when I started working on this book, it's because I was working with a lot of men and I heard, I kept hearing the same things over and over again. And mostly they would come in. First of all, they would largely not be there of their own accord. They would often have been sent by their wives, either overtly or covertly, sometimes as much as if you don't go see a therapist with through. So the men would come in and start reciting their litany of complaints with their partner. And it sounded to me like they had never talked to her. And so I would ask, say, well, are, are these things you've talked with your wife about? And astoundingly, they not only had never talked to her, but they thought my question was absurd. Like, why didn't I understand? If I had talked to her about it, I wouldn't be here talking to you about it. Like, what a stupid question. <laughs> And so it, it gradually dawned on me that they weren't talking to their wives because they were afraid to talk to their wives. And now, you know, you don't casually suggest to another man that he's afraid of a woman. So yeah. I would very cautiously sort of say, you know, it kind of sounds like you're afraid to talk to her. And I'd get the same response each time they would sort of bow up and get defensive. But very quickly, you could see it going across their face and they would say something like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And it would kind of explain a lot. And then things would start unpacking and everything started to make sense. All the places that had seemed sort of opaque and hard to understand all started to make a lot more sense. I have never actually had the courage. And this is this really made me stop and think. I've never had the courage to say to a man, you're frightened of your wife. And I've been doing this for 35 years. That sort of underlines really how big the taboo is. Exactly. So I wanted to call the book, but the publisher wouldn't let me. I wanted to call the book Pussy Whipped. 
Because if you think about it, why is it that the worst thing one man can accuse another of is of being controlled by a woman? And then if you really think about it, it's not just controlled by a woman, it's controlled, it's pussy whipped, not woman whipped. It's control. What does the pussy represent? It's your need of a woman. Mm. So men are saying, ha, 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 you're not a real man. You need a woman. Now, you do something that's really, really interesting. You do these workshops where, first of all, you get the men coming up on stage and talking about their relationships with their wives. And then in part two, you get hopefully the wives of the men that you had in the first part talking about what they learned from hearing the men yes. talk about their wives. Yes. So first of all, what happens when you have a group of men and you get them to talk about their wives? Well, it's liberating. It's, it's an enormous relief for the men. One of the biggest errors I've ever made as a therapist, when I started doing groups for men about 10 years ago, I remember the moment where I was standing outside the group room and getting ready to go in for the first, my first men's group ever and thinking, Avram, this is the worst idea you've ever had. <laughs> is it too late to cancel? Would they be really upset if I told them I changed? Because I thought we would talk about business and sports and politics and that I would have to work so hard. And they would be competing. Them. They'd be competing to yes. see who, who was the top dog as well. Exactly. Well, at the end of the first group, people got up and hugged each other. At the wow. end of the third group, I think, people started using the word love in reference to each other. My men's groups are the most consistently attended. I have a men's group that changed the day of the week. I go to a conference Wednesday through Sunday, three times a year. And the group was on Thursdays. They changed to Mondays or Tuesdays to have three more meetings. <laughs> a year. <laughs> what I learned is that men on the surface, it looks like stereotypically we think, oh, men don't like to talk about their feelings and they don't want to talk with other men. It's not true. Men don't want to open up emotionally when there are women in the room because they're frightened. But if you put men in a room alone with each other, you know, it, it's kind of like if you're an immigrant to this country and you don't know anybody else from your country, and then you go to a party and there's all people from your country, you're dying to talk to them. So what happens on stage? Because there are women, obviously, in the audience, probably their wives. So what do they say when you've relaxed them in public about being married? Well, I'm, I'm doing a slightly different version of it. The version you saw is for therapists, which is easier to do because they're used to talking about themselves. So I've come up with a version of it for the general public, which is less threatening and more fun. So there's an old TV show. There was two shows. One was called The Dating Game and the other was called The Newlywed Game. The formats were the same. They would ask questions about relationships and the men would write down what they thought their wives would say and the women would write down what they thought their husbands would say, and then they would share them with each other and see how completely wrong they were. So I'm using that format in the workshops to add some humor and make it less threatening. And when the, the men learn how far off their predictions, how little they know about their wives' internal lives, and the women learn how little they know. And so it's, it's a way of learning about each other that is sort of fun and less threatening. And I think what sort of comes up is the very different goals of men and women in marriage. Totally. Now, men's goal is to have an easy life, a quiet life. They just want everything to be sort of yes. nice. Yes. Whereas women want to be closer. They want yeah. to have a better relationship. Now, in theory, that shouldn't be a, too much of a problem. But I mean, week in, week out it becomes a huge problem. So why? Because the way arguments typically go seen through this lens, women make an approach for connection, which could be, let's go for a walk. We don't ever spend any time together. But the only part of that message the man hears is, we don't ever spend any time together. I'm not living up to my job as a husband, which is to keep you happy and you're criticizing me. So she makes what seems to her like an approach for connection. He gets defensive and withdraws. And she's like, wait a minute. What? You know, that doesn't make any sense. I, I'm not only not getting what I want, I'm getting the opposite of what I want. So she turns up the volume. 
she pursues more, which he hears as more critical and hardens and withdraws even more. And so it escalates and escalates. One writer said that Men and women are actually, just as you said, working at cross purposes, but don't realize it. So they each keep doing what they think is going to help because it's, it's like, the, you know, you said the remote control. It's like the remote control on the TV. She keeps turning the volume up. He keeps turning it down. And they wonder why neither one of them can get the volume they want because they're working at cross purposes. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting is you get women to think about the way that their mothers treated their fathers, because this could be heard as a bashing of men that, you know, they're doing it all wrong and it's the men that need to change. But, you know, I I believe to the very core of my being that it's 50-50. Everybody's got just as much skin in the game as each other. Has to be. And I think this is really interesting. What you discovered is the problem that women are bringing to this interaction. And it goes right back to watching the way that their mother interacted with their father or didn't interact with their father. So what happens when you ask women about the attitude of their mother to their husbands or their fathers? The way I ask the question, and as your listeners are listening, you could, for the women, ask yourself this question. What did your mother teach you about men? That's and a great that question. Would be, that would be taught you by what she said and how she behaved towards your father. So what did she teach you about men? Sadly, what I hear most of the time in response to that question is women are very intrigued by the question. It's not something they've consciously formulated, but it doesn't take them long to know the answer. And sadly, the answer is my mother taught me to not think much of men to not rely on men, to not turn to men to be your primary emotional partner and to sort of do things for them, not think that they're going to be able to do them. And I would say child rearing is the biggest place where this is visible, that women tend to supervise men in parenting. The thing is, men couldn't tell you that consciously, but they know it. And the way they know it is the single word I hear most often from men when they're talking about relationships, is criticized. And they feel talked down to as well. Absolutely. As if if they're like a small child. And then 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 their wives complain. They're not wrong. (laughs) We tend to treat men like they're being paranoid, like, oh, you're so hypersensitive. Listen carefully. They're not wrong. So if a woman is listening to this program and she's thinking, oops, you know, my mother taught me not to rely on men, not to trust them, to treat them like they, you know, have to be managed. How can she undo that training? Well, I think she has to ask herself a very difficult question. So in using that strategy, she has undoubtedly established some kind of stable status quo in her marriage, in which it's not as close as she'd like it to be, but things kind of move along in day-to-day life. So you really have to ask yourself, am I willing to risk that status quo and go after more of what I want? What helps women to take that risk? Well, let me say it the other way. What discourages women from taking that risk is that they don't know that men are interested in closeness too. They think of men almost more as their opponent than their ally because it's men's desire for intimacy is often so hidden that it doesn't seem like they would be an ally. If you can convince women, like in the workshop where the women see the men talking with each other about their yearning for closeness, once they really get that men want closeness as much as they do, then they're more willing to take that big risk. Now, you've got skin in this game as well, because you were married and you couldn't actually explain to your wife or your first wife why you were unhappy. So talk me through that. I think I couldn't explain it because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand, you know, I saw my behaviors. I saw how conflict averse I was and how conflict so rarely, you know, got anywhere between us. But I didn't understand until years later what the cause of that was, sadly. 
neither of us understood it. I think if either one of us had understood it, things might have gone differently. But we just kept basically repeating the same patterns again and again without really any understanding of them. And what would you say was the key piece of information that you needed that you didn't have at that point? That I wasn't being a jerk or stubborn or a power control, that I was terrified. And that much of our conflict could be understood through an entirely different lens once you understand how scared I was. And if we go back to the idea of you learn this from your mother, why should you be terrified of your mother? Because most men have mothers that are more likely to suffocate them than march them down the hall and to give them a hard time. Well, go back to the still face experiment, because that's exactly where it goes, is that most of us were raised by women. Fortunately, that's beginning to change, but it is still true that most people, the primary emotional caretaker for most people is women. Uh, there's a an old feminist author by the name of Dorothy Dinnerstein who said that the only way to really ever change the patriarchy is for men to be equally involved as parents. If your dad is not really a place of emotional connection and attachment for you, and it's only your mom, then you can't risk that. You can't risk behaviors. And so if you remember in the still face, they're each trying to find what pleases the other. And any sign that what I've just done displeases you carries risks that I can't tolerate. So men become very other-centered. I had a guy tell me once, that he could tell if his wife was upset with him when he walked in the front door of the house before he saw her, that he could, he believed, and I, and I don't disagree with him. He was convinced that he could feel it in the air. But think of how preoccupied he is with his wife's approval that the first thing is like a, a dog watching, you know, walking into the room. Is it okay? Is it safe? Is she okay? Did I do anything wrong? If you're going home with that attitude, you're going to be doing one of a of a variety of things that don't work. So we're going to I'm just going to highlight the things that don't work dealing yeah. with women's anger. And yeah. then I'm then we'll do what does work and let's look also at how women can express their anger in a way that men are going to hear. Absolutely. So these are the things that don't work. Now, the first thing you're going to do if you're sniffing the air when you come home to see the lay of the land is you're going to placate Yes. Um, you're going to try and minimize, oh, actually, you've got no right to be angry about the fact I left my shoes in the hallway because you left your knickers in the bathroom, sort of drying over the, yes. over the sink, sort of kind of stuff. Shutting down and, you know, not actually responding at all. Yep. Or fighting back and cross-complaining. None of yep. those are going to work, are they? Mostly will make things worse. So what could you do? that would be the opposite of all of those things? You could understand. You could understand. <laughs> Actually, I'll just make that a complete sentence. So I walk in and my wife says, you left your shoes in the hallway. I say, okay, thank you. That's a piece of information, but it doesn't tell me anything about what you're trying to tell me. Why are you telling me that? I'm missing it. What is important to you about the shoes being in the hallway? And I'll make up an answer. Let's say she says, you know, disrespectful. You're not actually respecting all the hard work I do. That's the reason why. So I'm role-playing with you now. So I don't, it doesn't quite make sense. You're really not telling me anything about you. You're judging and criticizing me with that. What happens to you when you walk in and you see my shoes there? I've spent all my free time, which I have very little of, yeah. looking after the house, making it clean and nice so that we can all enjoy it, and you're fighting against me. You know, that is disrespectful. I don't agree with you it's disrespectful because I didn't know that. I think it would be disrespectful if I did that knowing why it's important to you. But the piece that's missing here is I didn't understand. So had I walked in and you said to me, feels bad to me when you leave your shoes there. I worked really hard to clean. Would you please pick? I don't think I would have been upset with you at all. I didn't understand why it's important to you. Because what I normally ask men to do is just actually, because they're on high alert at this particular point, you know, so it's actually quite difficult to 
engage your brain to ask those curious questions. I love curious questions, but I put them a bit further down the the list. You know, the first thing you do is you reflect back what you've heard. So you're angry with me because I left my shoes in the hall. And that at least means that you're listening. And so uh, you're not going to make anything worse. And you're actually buying yourself time. Then I asked them to ask the three most loving words in the English language. Do you know what the three most loving words in the English language are? Tell me more. Well, actually, I was going to say, is there more? But yes, you're in exactly the same place as me. Because actually to say to your wife, I know you're angry. Are there other things you're angry about? I mean, it's it's a really brave thing to do because she'll actually tell you about the other things you've done. But you're actually being very loving because you're prepared to hear her. You're prepared to accept not just the lovey-dovey part of her, but also the bits that's annoyed with you too. Right. Because if you if you can't get to curiosity, what's about to happen is the two of them are going to have an argument about whether or not shoes should be left in the hallway, which is going to be deeply unsatisfying to both of them. But that's not what they're upset about. You know, in your role playing the woman, they're upset about something entirely. Now, I don't feel sympathetic if you tell me that you get to make the rules in the family and shoes aren't allowed to be in the hallway. I'm not sympathetic to that. I, I'm not likely to comply with your rules for me, which is how most men would hear that. So if I'm the woman, I'm still thinking that shoes should actually, you know, shouldn't be there for me to trip over. I've just come back with a whole load of shopping. And the last thing I want to do is fall over your shoes. So how are we going to resolve this now that we've actually listened to each other? I think that probably couples have resolved problems far more complicated than that. And what gets in the way of their resolving it is they're having a power struggle over who gets to make the rules in the family. And as long as it stays on that level, they will never resolve it. You know, in any argument, I always use, well, I always use sex as an example because people understand it. Sex goes best when I am very interested in your pleasure and very interested in my pleasure. doesn't go very well if either one of us is only interested in the other person's pleasure or either one of us is only interested in their own. And so conflict is exactly the same. I have to be as committed to it going well for you and equally committed to it. So around the shoes, a resolution that like, oh, you're right, shoes don't belong in the hallway isn't going to go well. Because on the other side, you know, the man is thinking something like, I hate feeling so regimented. That's how my mother was growing up. Everything had to be, and I walked around on eggshells. So that's, you can't just go one way or the other. So my guess is what they would come up with is some kind of cubby thing next to the door where I can put my shoes without feeling like I'm, you know, under inspection all the time. That would honor her needs for neatness and my needs to not always be watched. So the answer really nearly always is to go deeper, to actually ask yourself, what what is this argument really about? And it's never really just about shoes, is it? Yeah, probably. You know, I think there are a lot of good things that happen as you're a therapist and you've been practicing for decades rather than years. But the bad thing that happens is I, I'm so clear that this is not about what you're talking about that I sometimes don't want to listen to the details because I'm so eager to get to what's really going on that I can sound kind of impatient and abrupt because then I don't want to talk about shoes. Yeah, I had a couple and we got through three sessions on the best way to cycle things through the freezer. And I reached, I was beginning to reach the point where I was about to go mad, but we did finally actually get to the point we could talk about what it was really about. But yeah, my gosh. There's an example that I use often, which is it's a very simple, easy example. My wife once said to me, we were getting ready to go out and she said, you should change your shirt. That doesn't look good on you. And I said, Well, obviously we disagree because I went to my closet and I picked this shirt and I didn't pick it thinking it doesn't look good on me. I picked it thinking it does look good on me. But you know what? I'm not that attached to the shirt. If you say to me, honey, I'm really not that attracted to you when you wear that shirt, I will run upstairs to the closet and change my shirt. (laughs) Very different message. The first one, you're telling me what's right and what's wrong and anybody's resistant to that. The second one is I like this. So. We're going to accept that men are frightened of women's anger and they are frightened of upsetting their wives. 
Yes. Now, if a woman has taken that on board, they're going to probably come at their husbands with their valid complaints in a different kind of way. So they're now sitting here and they want you to tell them, you know, I've got a complaint about my husband. We might as well stay with the shoes. And I've never been able to really get this one sorted. And I think I really do want to actually, let's not make it shoes. Let's make it something where it's more difficult, you know, like um, whether our 16-year-old daughter is allowed to stay out late or not. So, you know, everybody's got skin in this game. Yep. So I've got, and I think that he is too protective of her to the point of um, coming across as a, as a nasty dad. So there's a potentially a huge amount of criticism about to come down the pathway right. That's if, if I'm not careful. Critical judgment. Yeah. So here I am and I've got this issue that's really important to me. How do I approach my husband without making him angry? And how can I do it in a way that is not going to come across as angry myself? I think the thing to avoid is not anger. In other words, I don't think it's a problem to be angry or for the response from the other person. I think it's criticism that you want to stay away from. And the answer is to, is to speak in a way that I like the phrase relationally responsible. There's a very interesting principle of Jewish ethics. And that principle is that you are responsible for the impact of all of your words, whether you intended that impact or not. So, for example, in Jewish ethics, gossip is considered a greater harm to someone than stealing, because if I steal 20 bucks from you, I can pay the 20 bucks back and make amends. If I speak badly of you to others, I've created harm I can't repair. And so we hold people to the standard. If you are responsible for the impact of all of your words, then you don't just speak to vent how you're feeling you speak to move the relationship forward and you consider your words and how not just am I expressing myself well, but am I speaking in a way that you can hear and will help the two of us forward? And I am responsible for the impact of my words. And if you speak with that level of concern for the other, it will go well. So start off on the, this topic of how late our daughter is allowed to stay sure. out without it coming across as criticism about me. If Bearing I'm in mind, I'm a woman, very sensitive person, yes. Sure. If I'm the woman, I would say, I want to talk with you about what just happened with our daughter. And I know that this is a touchy subject between us. And so I'm really going to work hard to talk about this way in a way that is not critical or blaming of you. But if you start to feel criticized, please interrupt me. And don't just let it keep going. So what I want to talk to you about is how I feel when you talk to her that way. I am not saying to you that you did it wrong. So my reaction to it is some combination of how you did it and my history and how I react. But when you talked to her before, my shoulders tightened up. I got nervous. I was worried that she was going to be defensive and not hear like that. That is wonderful. I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, yeah, tell me more. You know, right. I really genuinely want you to tell me more about all of this. Yes. I'm not feeling criticised at all. Which is the gold standard. That's exactly what you would hope for, is that the other person would want to hear more. So we've been talking about how men can be frightened of women. And I've been thinking about how women, and I'm not going to actually use the word frightened of men, because we're not actually in the abuse kind of field. So we're parceling that off something else. This is not what this conversation is about. But I think the question is, do you feel safe with your husband? And when I say safe, I mean safe to be yourself and to to show yourself have I got the right question? How do we get into this sort of the opposite way round? Yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful question. And I don't think men have stopped to think nearly often enough about your question, because sadly, the answer is no. And we know that's true, because if you ask most women, you know, if something really is upsetting you, who would you, who do you immediately think of to talk to? Most often, I think the answer would be a friend and not their husband. And I think men would be hurt to know, I think they kind of know that, but don't know what to do about it and would like to be the person 
that their wives would turn to with a need, with an intimate need. And that's something you earn. It doesn't, you know, it's not given to you with a wedding license. Actually, I was thinking about that in response to the letter from the reader then. We can go there talking about it. But, you know, that that letter was about trust and how trust is earned. Well, that's a very good way for us to lead into the letter, and we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the ways you can get involved in The Meaningful Life is you can tell us about a dilemma or something that's actually causing you problems at the moment. And I scour the world and nine times out of 10, I come up with the best person in the world you could possibly ask this question to. And beautifully timed, I have this letter to discuss with Avram. By the way, if you'd like to find out more, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And here is the letter. I'm in my mid-sixties. My parents divorced when I was three. My father was a functional alcoholic, but not abusive. Mother, emotionally abusive, amongst other things. My father killed himself when I was 13 because my mother kept us from him. Mother remarried a man who became a lifeline for me. The same year my father killed himself was the same year I was raped. By this time, I was learning to build protective walls. At the age of 22, I married a rock musician who was very controlling. Wouldn't have sex with me as he said, godly women don't do that. When our kids were just eight and ten, I found out my husband had been having affairs the entire time of our 14-year marriage. I forced him to come clean with how many, and he said, as far as he could remember, there were at least 18 women, some long-term, some one-night stands. Needless to say, we divorced. Two years later, I married again. My second husband also had children. I called him my angel sent by God, as I was able to try and start healing from my past, because he was so incredibly trustworthy and loved me for who I was. I was also married to him for 14 years but in 2008 he was killed in a construction accident. That's when the real darkness began. I remained single, never dating for 10 years, although it was the most difficult time, understatement, in my life because of the grief. It was also a freeing time because I didn't have to deal with these issues. I've always had with trust, trust in men, and you could say trust with women too. Eventually, I met a retired firefighter four years ago, and we're now living together. He's an amazing man, but my old feelings of non-trust have resurfaced. I don't lash out. I don't act like a crazy, jealous person. I just keep it all inside, build walls so no one can hurt me again. I'm not sure about counselling and how it might help me. It's a powerful, poignant, sad letter. And sadly, I think your listener, like many people in this situation, imagine that they are in an unusual situation. And sadly, that's not true. I can't quite pull up the number, but I believe it's two-thirds of women are sexually assaulted sometime in their lifetime, most often by someone who they know, not by a stranger. And so she frames this as having issues with trust. There's an old saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. I don't think she has issues with trust. I think she is generalizing from what her life experience is, which is what we all do. The problem is not that she's not sufficiently trusting. The problem is that she's traumatized. She's mm. seeing the world in a way that accurately looks. So in her, in her story, every man she has been close to or trusted or relied on has left her through deaths, through betrayal, through ways both intentionally and unintentionally, but on the receiving end, it always ends up with abandonment. And walls make perfect sense under those circumstances, don't they? Yes. So, and so I think the first step is to normalize, although it is every defense has its cost, every defense because, you know, walls keep out everything, not just the stuff you want to keep out. 
but to first support and validate and normalize that, yeah, what you're doing not only makes complete sense, but how inappropriate would it be for you to have no walls? You know, if your country's been attacked 17 times and you still don't have an army, how come, right? So I think you start by supporting and normalizing and validating that I understand why you have walls. Good for you. Thank God you know how to build a wall because you would be destroyed. Rather than berating yourself for having walls, you should be thankful that you have the capacity to build walls. Now, the challenge for human beings is, you know, we're making such incredible advances in understanding neurology, neuropsychology, and we understand that literally in the brain, the more times that you engage in a certain defensive pattern, it's like the old, you know, rut and the wheel. The deeper the rut gets, the more likely the wheel is to slide into the same rut. And so that's exactly the situation she's in, so that she is now so habituated to being guarded and protected that she goes to that defense before she even has a chance to assess whether or not this is a dangerous situation. And so the work for her, for you, would involve building up her strength and her support network so that she feels more capable of taking good care of herself without the need for such immediate and impenetrable barriers, walls. And the more capable she feels of taking care of herself, the more she'll be able to risk taking chances with someone, knowing that, and this is the great dilemma of marriage, is that when you allow someone to be that important to you, you are, of course, taking the risk that they may hurt you deeply, intentionally or unintentionally. And I think that there's a bit of a pattern here that I think if you understand it will actually lower the anxiety a little bit. Because what you've done for very valid reasons is you've divided men into two camps. Bad men who cheat or who are functional alcoholics, although probably your father fits in the bad camp and the good camp. He might be one of the ambivalent characters, but certainly your rock star husband, maybe probably not a rock star, maybe just a, a rock player. He was a bad man, whereas your second husband was a good man, an angel, which is a quite a, a, I haven't heard many men described as angels. So we are in quite black and white kind of levels. So we've got the devil and the angel. Right. And if you're seeing the world as devils and angels, then you're going to be there all the time asking if your boyfriend is a devil or an angel. And we're in real jeopardy because if he's an angel, we're going to live happily ever after. And if he's a devil, we're going to suffer forevermore. And the reality is he's probably just a a regular guy who has a bit of angel and a bit of devil in him. And you're going to be swinging backs and forwards because you're trying to hold these as two characters as different people. And because you believe that your safety resides in them. So if, if he starts to behave like a devil, I have no defense. I'm completely exposed and at risk as opposed to like, everyone is a little devilish at times. We all have our moments. And I know what to do to take care of myself when you're not treating me well. So how would therapy help? Because if you've got a lot of trauma, your fear is, you know, if I open the box, I'm just going to be overwhelmed by it. I think that, uh, as in many situations, I frequently think that group therapy is probably the treatment of choice here. Because you can enact in a room with other people, there will be misunderstandings, if not harm, you know, hurt feelings in the room. But in a therapy group, people have an agreement to hang in there and work towards a positive outcome with each other. And so you have the opportunity in a group to try opening yourself to experience some kind of interpersonal harm and to work towards repair. And you build your confidence that that's something you know how to do. And probably in the room, you'll be dividing them up into, oh, she's really nice. I can trust her, him. Oh, well, he's a, he's a right so and so. And 
when you begin to see that you're doing that, and as you go through, you discover that she isn't quite so much of an angel, and he's actually quite a sweetheart, you begin to realize that it's actually more complicated right. than this black and Which white Which you stuff. would discover in a group, because this guy who you've just decided is a, a devil, you watch him interact with someone else, and he's per- per being perfectly sweet and lovely. And then you wonder, like, well, why do I have him split off as a devil? He's actually quite capable so how am I going to get the good stuff from him while protecting myself from the stuff that's scary? Excellent. Well, I hope that's been helpful. And if you would like to have a similar kind of discussion about something, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you go down and you'll find a form called Participate in the Program. So I have to say thank you very much for being my guest here on The Meaningful Life. And I have to ask you the question, what makes your life meaningful? That's really was an easy question. I just came back for a conference where I was speaking to therapists about this work and several people pulled me aside and told me how meaningful the book has been to them, how many times they have given it to couples, the ways in which they've so it's an extraordinary privilege. Privilege is a very popular word these days. This is a different kind of privilege I'm talking about for me. The thought that I might actually, you know, you, you write a book, you're locked in a room by yourself for a lot of years, and then it gets out there and people say to you, well, that was really helpful. That really made a difference in my life. Someone who you've never met, someone who you've never had a conversation with is an extraordinary privilege. And so, you know, as I wind down my career, the thought that I can be of help to people that I haven't met is exceptionally meaningful. So unfortunately, this is where the conversation has to end, unless you're a member of our supporters circle for The Meaningful Life. Because if you are, the conversation continues. And I'm going to be discussing the seven things that men are most afraid of, because it will really help you to understand what's actually behind these fears. How are your comments activating those hidden things that actually are secret to men themselves. If you want to hear about those, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.